to uh, direct your attention to a parallel passage from which I will make one observation early in the sermon. Mark chapter 1 describes the same incident. So Luke chapter 4 is where I'll have my Bible open throughout most of the sermon, but right at the beginning there's a point that I want to make from a parallel account of the same incident in the way that Luke in the way that Mark describes it. <clears throat> in recent years I have come to greatly appreciate a preacher who was born in the 1700s whose name was Christmas Evans. He was born on Christmas Day and so his parents named him Christmas. And uh, when he was a teenager, he gave his life to Christ, and uh, there were some ruffians in the neighborhood who uh, found that offensive, and so they beat him up because he had become a Christian, and they beat him so severely that he lost the, he lost, he became blind in one of his eyes, so for the rest of his life, he was blind in one eye. The Lord called him to preach while he was still a fairly young man, and uh, he was from the country of Wales. And back in the 1700s in Wales, uh, the the Baptists would have large gatherings. Uh, So the churches were fairly small, but uh, when the churches could get together, they would get together, and there would be several hundred or maybe even two or three thousand people who would gather for these these preaching, these preaching gatherings. <clears throat> and uh, the Welsh are known to be great singers, and they are known to be great preachers as well. And at one of these big gatherings, one of the most famous preachers was not able to make it. And so uh, many of the Baptists who had assembled at this at this conference had come specifically to hear this man who now was not going to be there. And then that left the organizer of the conference scrambling to try and fill his place. And so he asked first one and then another who politely refused the responsibility of preaching to so many thousands on such short notice until finally someone said to him, Well, why don't you ask that one-eyed man? Ask that one-eyed man from so-and-so. I've heard that he can preach. And so the the man went and asked Christmas Evans if he would preach. And at this time, Christmas Evans was totally unknown, just a, a, a pastor of a backwoods tiny church. But they asked him if he would preach. When the people heard that it was a an unknown preacher who was going to be filling the pulpit, then uh, they began going off to various places on the grounds. It was an open-air meeting, and some of them thought this would be a good time to have their lunch or made, maybe to meet with friends. And so the congregation began to dissipate when Christmas Evans got up to preach. But he hadn't been preaching very long until the crowd regathered. So the people left their picnics, and they left their little individual gatherings, and they came and they sat and they heard one of, the, one of the greatest sermons that they had ever heard 
from a man who came to be the most famous preacher in all of Wales. But it just, it just burst on him suddenly. His word came with great authority and his word came with great power. And I use that story as an illustration for this incident in the life of Jesus because probably the, the primary message of this scripture text that I'm preaching from today is the great authority that came with the word of Jesus. And that great authority was recognized by both humans and non-humans. In this text, we'll see the response of uh, the, the first part of this sermon. I'll talk about the authority. Jesus, Jesus and his word came with authority. I'm saying two things there. Jesus and his word came with authority. And then we will see how this text records the response of humans. They were astonished and they were amazed. They spread the word around. And the response among, a de- uh, among the demons, represented by one demon-possessed man who was there, who, as far as we know, there was only one demon there, but he spoke on behalf of the rest of the demons when he says, Have you come to destroy us? And uh, so let's, let's turn our attention to this text of Scripture. Uh, let me read the text from Luke first, and then I'll have you turn back to Mark chapter 1 to show, to show you one thing from Mark chapter 1. Verse 31 says, <clears throat> And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Note that. His word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And and when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Now, before I leave Luke 4, let me point out to you again that verse 32 says that his word possessed authority. Now, turn back to Mark chapter 1. It's almost word for word the same. A couple of slight differences. Verse 22 states one of those differences. It says in Mark 1.22, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. Back in Luke it said his, his word had authority. But now it says he has authority. So these are not at all contradictory. And they give, us, they give me an opportunity to uh, make a point and you to think about what's the difference when it says that uh, Jesus came with great authority and his word came with great authority. Let's first of all think about 
the statement that Jesus himself had great authority. Now, in order, in order for a person to have authority, it must either be delegated to him or it must be inherent in him. So if, if you're playing in the basement and your older sister comes down and says, go to bed, then you're liable to say, you're not the boss of me. And if you do say that, then she might say with some authority, go to bed, dad said. And so that's, that's a delegated authority. Somebody else has sent me on this mission, and now I'm telling you what someone else has said. And Jesus had that kind of authority. Uh, when, the de- when the demon cries out, he says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. You're the one that we've heard about through the ages, the one that we learned about when you were baptized in the Jordan. I suspect that they never knew who he was before his baptism at the Jordan. But then once the baptism at the Jordan took place, then I think that Satan marshaled all of his demonic forces and says, we've got to get rid of this guy. Where does he live? Well, he lives in Nazareth. And so we've, we've got to get after him. But they knew that he was the one who had been promised. By the way, I also think that the demons never knew how Jesus as the Messiah was going to accomplish the work of the Messiah. There's a passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians, it may be in 2 Corinthians, I can't remember which, which, that says, if the rulers of this age had known that Jesus was the Christ, they would not have crucified him. And I think that that's making reference to the demonic rulers, making reference to those spiritual beings who are in rebellion against God. And when they killed Jesus, they thought, we're getting rid of the one who came to destroy us. If they had known that this was in fact the plan that God had devised to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, then they would have avoided killing him. So I think that's what that passage of Scripture means, that they, if they had known that he was the Christ, the rulers of this age would not have crucified him. I don't think it was referring there in Corinthians to the rulers of the Jewish nation, because I think the rulers of the Jewish nation knew that Jesus was the Christ and said, we do not want this man to rule over us. And I think that that's what Jesus described as the unpardonable sin. If you know for sure that Jesus is the Christ, no doubt about it, and then for some earthly selfish reason you say, but I am not going to acknowledge that, then you have committed the sin that cannot be forgiven. Talking about the unpardonable sin is a sermon for another day. Let me say this just for those of you who may be afraid that you have committed the unpardonable sin. If you want to be saved, and if you are willing to be saved through Jesus, you may be saved. Because the Bible says, anyone who wants to may come and take of the water of life. That's the scripture memory verse that we sang. The Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. That scripture is echoing something that's found in Isaiah chapter 55 that says, Ho, everyone who is thirsty, come ye to the waters. 
Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you waste your labor on that which will never satisfy you? Come to the waters. Stop trying to find your satisfaction somewhere else. So if today you are willing to turn from your sin and receive Jesus as your Lord, then you have not committed the unpardonable sin if you will receive Christ. And if you won't receive Christ, then all of your sins are unpardonable. And so don't make that your sticking point on whether or not you come to Christ. Don't worry, have I committed the unpardonable sin? If you're willing to come to Christ, then he will save you. And so Jesus, in, 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 in beginning to speak, he demonstrated he was someone who had been who had authority conferred on him. God had authorized him to be his representative and to teach the truth of God and to do the work that God had planned for the salvation of all of his elect. But then there's another kind of authority that is not delegated. It is an inherent authority that is just invested in in the person. So it may be the position that he occupies, or it may be just the, the augustness of his person and his appearance, so that if you're playing in the basement and uh, your dad comes down and says, it's time to go to bed, and then you have the cheek to say, why? If your dad says, because I said so, that reflects inherent authority. I don't have to explain to a seven-year-old why I'm telling you to do what I've got to do. Obey me, because I have inherent authority. Now, authority, if it means anything, carries with it the idea that there is power behind the authority. Otherwise, otherwise authority loses all of its teeth, it loses all of its strength. There is power behind the authority. And so, when Jesus comes, he's been delegated by God. In himself, he has, uh, he has authority. I think that's obvious in several places. So we, just a few, it's obvious in several places that I think Jesus had something about him that made people look at him, that made people respect him, that made people obey him, sometimes even when they were reluctant to do so. So two or three weeks ago, maybe longer, we read how that Jesus preached a sermon in his hometown of Nazareth, and they got so angry at him that they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they might throw him down. And then that story concludes with that he turned around and walked through the midst of them. How do you explain that? They, they were given enough leash that they were allowed to take him to the brow of the hill. But then when they're getting ready to throw him over, somebody pulls on the choke chain and they don't throw him over. Or consider at the other end of Jesus' life when he's in the garden and uh, Judas comes leading a group with swords and torches and uh, Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am he. And when he said, I am he, then it was like they had been blown over by some wind. Like, like a tidal wave from the ocean had just blasted them all down. They all fell down. They picked themselves up. 
They asked, and he said, who are you looking for? Jesus said, I told you that I am he. And this time the tidal wave never came. How do you explain that? I explain it that there was some kind of inherent authority that was obvious in Jesus that when he wanted to, he could just kind of lift the shield that was protecting his awesomeness from all the people around him, and they felt it. I think that there is <clears throat> there's not the same level of awesomeness that people felt when Jesus let his shine. Not the same level of awesomeness anywhere else in the world, but I think that there is an experience of the awesomeness of God's authority and power that one experiences in person that he or she will not experience some other way. By what I mean by in person, I'm saying it's really important for you to hear a preacher, a real live preacher, preach in person. Not just watch him on the internet, not just listen to him, but I think that there is something that is transformative about hearing a real live preacher. I think that there is something transformative about being in a real live congregation that is singing. And it's a different experience from just listening to it through headphones or listening to it on a stereo system. That being involved in it is something that has a, has a power in it. And so I'm thankful that there are people who watch Bullet Lick on the internet and sometimes all around the world, and we're so grateful to be able to provide this service for you, and I'm so grateful that you listen to the preaching that's here at Bullet Lick. But let me say this, <clears throat> if you're staying home from church to listen to me on the internet or to listen to some other preacher on the internet, and you could go to church if you wanted to, you should go. You should, you should turn off the internet. You can listen to us later if you want to. But go and be with the people of God because I think that there is a manifestation of God's grace and of the power of Christ and the authority of Christ's word that he, he imbues his church with, his live meeting church that is not to be found anywhere else. So Jesus had... Jesus had great authority, Mark tells us. But now Luke, turning our attention to what Luke says, not only did Jesus have great authority, but it says, but his word possessed authority. They were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Now there are several things, I believe, that go into making the word of Jesus authoritative to that audience and the word of Jesus authoritative to this audience or to any audience. And the first thing is that he is speaking the truth. We believe, we believe Christianity, we are Christians, not just because our moms and dads were Christians, not just because it's culturally acceptable in the United States to be a Christian, not just because of the friends that Christianity gives us access to. We are Christians because we believe that Christianity is true. 
It is true. And so when Jesus speaks uh, the word, I think that there was something very powerful and authoritative about the truth. Something that many of you have felt and that I also have felt many times. It's true. And so it comes with authority. But then also, I think that uh, when the word is spoken by a person, it comes with authority, not only because it is true, but also because the person speaking it believes it to be true. And the person who is speaking it also practices the truth of what he or she is saying. You know, the Bible says that faith without works is dead. We may say that we have received Jesus as our Lord and Savior, but if we continue to live in sin and continue to live under our own direction rather than under the direction of God's Word, then the Bible says that we're lying and the truth is not in us. Faith without works is dead. That same principle applies to the, the messages of truth that we hear. Someone may be speaking the truth, but if his or her life does not reflect a confidence in that truth and a belief in that truth, then it doesn't come with power. We think, you're just playing games. If you, you're just saying religious stuff. You don't really believe it, because if you believed it, your life would be different than the life that I know that you live. And so... Do you want to speak the Word of God with authority? Do you want it to come with power? This is not just for preachers. This is for all of us who, who want to speak the Word of God with authority. First of all, make sure that it is the Word of God. Let it be obvious that you believe it. Let it be obvious that you believe it because of the way that you are living. So I think that there was something very uh, convincing about Jesus' truth because they knew that he believed this. They could tell by the way that he was talking about it that he, he believed it. True authority in, in preaching does not come just because you shout loudly. Uh, true authority in preaching can come when, when someone is speaking very calmly, but speaking the truth and speaking it with conviction. Then the word goes forth with power. And so the first part of this sermon, I've, uh, we've talked about authority, how that Jesus came with authority and Jesus' word came with authority. Now let's look at the reaction. And the first reaction that we see is that the people were astonished in verse 32. They were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. And then skip down to verse 36 where it says, and they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. So their reaction was one of astonishment and one of amazement. Now, I, I believe that there is no such thing as an exact synonym in the English language. I think that very close, I mean, I know that there are such things as thesauri, a thesaurus is a, is a book that lists words that are very close, but none of them are exactly synonymous. And uh, 
But I confess to you that I have a hard time discerning the difference between astonishment and amazement. And so on the drive down here, I asked uh, my wife and asked Naomi, do you perceive any difference between astonishment and amazement? Well, for one thing, this, this doesn't help us very much, we almost never use the word astonished. I mean, can you ever think of anything in the last few weeks that you said, well, I was just absolutely astonished. Uh, but it's a good word. I think maybe we should maybe incorporate it into our value. That's just astonishing. But uh, I can't remember using that in my everyday language. Amazed, on the other hand, that's just amazing. That's, that's not so unusual. Uh, my wife offered this, and I, and I suppose it's about as good as we can get. And I don't get any help. I mean, I, I read this text in, in Greek, and I don't get any help. It's two different words. And uh, I, I, I still can't discern what the difference is. But I think my wife gave a pretty good explanation. Astonishment is the shock that you feel all at once, but it doesn't necessarily last. Whereas amazement can be something that is extended over a longer period of time. Well, I don't know if, I don't know if that bears up to etymological scrutiny uh, but it's, uh, it's better than anything that I came up with. And so I'll be interested to talk to you etymologists later on to see what you think about the difference between astonishment and amazement might be. I, uh, but in any, either case, the people were, the people were astonished. <laughs> the people were amazed. We haven't heard anything like this. He speaks with authority. He is not constantly quoting someone else to verify what he says. He speaks the naked truth, and he, he seems to not care who else has said it. He just says it. Whereas many of the teachers during the time of Jesus were constantly quoting one, one source or another source. And uh, for you, you young men who are preachers and aspiring to be preachers, don't be a preacher who is constantly quoting somebody else. Sometimes I think that that's just an effort to show how much you have read. I know that when I was a young preacher, I was guilty of that, and I received a very timely rebuke from a pastor. Uh, I was preaching at his church, and uh, th- these were back in the days when we had week-long meetings and I was 19 years old, was preaching at the Devondale Baptist Church in Lexington, Kentucky. Johnny Thompson was the pastor there. And I stayed with the Thompsons that week. And uh, early in the week, I quoted something, and I quoted the exact author in the exact page where it was found. I thought that was just so smart. And uh, Brother Thompson, good old country boy, just easygoing, uh, I think he just made a little mental note, I need to speak to this young upstart later in the week. But he did it in such a gentle way. He was talking about Clarence Walker, who had pastored the Ashland Avenue Baptist Church for 50 years, and many people in Lexington admired Clarence Walker. And he was talking to me about Clarence Walker, and he said, you know, he was, he was such a good preacher and uh, very intelligent, but he would never, ever quote like a book that he was reading or the page in that book or anything like that. Just so smooth. Just so smooth. But I was paying attention. And uh, I don't know that I've ever quoted a book and said it was found on this page in that book. That, 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 
this page in that book since that time. So it was a good rebuke. One of the things that I like about reading C.S. Lewis is that he is not constantly quoting other people. When you read C.S. Lewis, you're getting C.S. Lewis. And uh, so I think that 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 was a feature of the the thing about the teaching of Jesus that gave such such authority is that he he amazed people. They were amazed because he spoke with such authority. And they went out and they talked to other people about it. Well, that's the human reaction. Before I go on to the non-human reaction, let's just pause for a moment and ask ourselves, have I ever felt this astonishment at the teaching of Jesus? Have I ever been amazed at the teaching of Jesus? Has there ever been something that I've been reading and just thought, oh, wow, that is really amazing. That is astonishing. May the Lord bless us with those kind of uh, encounters with his word, that we too feel the authority of Jesus and feel the astonishment of it. You know, one of my bits of advice to someone who is an agnostic, an agnostic is someone who says, I just don't know. Agnostic is a Greek word. Gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge, and you put an alpha in front of it, it means I don't know. The, uh, the Latin word for that is ignoramus. No kidding, it really is. So uh, agnostic in Greek, ignoramus in Latin. Uh, but for someone who says, you know, I'm, not, I'm just not sure that uh, the Bible is the Word of God, one of the best pieces of advice that you can give and one that I give is, why don't you just read the Bible for one month and pretend like it is the Word of God? Just for one month, read it that way, and then see what you think after that. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And, uh, and so it's a good thing if we can get people reading, reading the Bible because God may send that, that bolt of astonishment, that bolt of amazement that makes people think this really is the Word of God. And it has authority and power with it. That's the way they left saying, with authority and power, he commands the evil spirits and they come out. So now let's turn our attention to the, the reaction of the non-human. And in this case, we don't get to see what the angels thought. We know that the angels are eagerly looking into the things that have been revealed. Uh, but in this case, it was not a good angel, but it was a demon. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us where the demons came from. There are some theories about that, but we just might as well acknowledge that uh, the Bible doesn't specifically explain how there came to be bad spirits in the world. But there are. This one in particular is described as an unclean spirit. Find that, find that interesting. He is an unclean spirit. There are other designations of spirits, but this one in particular is called an unclean spirit. I don't think it meant that the guy stopped taking baths. I don't think it meant that he had extraordinarily bad body odor. I think that it, I think that it refers to the moral, the moral filthiness that he led this person into. Things that were not your, not your run-of-the-mill crimes that when people hear of them, they're not scandalized. But this guy was doing stuff that people just said, well, that's dirty. And uh, so it was a, an unclean spirit 
who had influenced this man. There is something in Mark's account of this that doesn't appear in Luke, and it is the word immediately. So he says that, so as he is teaching, immediately there was a man in the synagogue having an unclean spirit. And uh, I wonder about that little word, immediately. Just as soon as Jesus began to teach, did this, did this demon hear and recognize who this, who this was, who was doing the, the speaking? I'm not sure, but I think there must be some reason that Mark uses the word immediately to say that this encounter takes place. Now, we have, we have great curiosity about demon possession. Um, I would say that demon possession may be defined as that point at which the influence of a demon in a person becomes so prevalent that the demon is in the driving seat. So that the demon, the demon may not have complete control so that the person uh, who is possessed by the demon may still be able to carry on a job, may still be able to carry on a normal conversation, but that the demon who has infiltrated the person's life, and I gather from accounts like this that they want to occupy a physical body. One of the theories about demons is that it that the demons are a result of the illicit union between the sons of God and the daughters of men described in Genesis chapter 6, and that when they died, that their spirits were evil, but they still longed to be embodied. Uh, so that, there's a good deal of speculation about that. Don't take that home and say that's where demons came from. I've already told you that the Bible doesn't explicitly say But apparently there is something about demons that they do long to be embodied and use, use, it may, it may not even be a human. You remember when Jesus cast the legion of demons out of the Gadarene maniac, they wanted to go into the pigs. And, uh, so just in general, I think that they, they would probably would prefer to be embodied in a human, but if they can't have a human, they'll take pigs. And, uh, so, I, I don't know. I can't say for certain that I've ever come face-to-face with a person that I thought was demon-possessed. It's possible. Maybe some of you say, yeah, I definitely have. I had someone recently uh, describe an experience that, that he had with a relative of his, and he thought that he had never seen a personification of evil so palpably and concretely before his eyes as that. So maybe that some of you have encountered... I can't have, but I can't say for sure that I've ever encountered... Uh, someone who who was being driven by a demon. Does demon possession still occur? It certainly seems like it, but why don't we see the kind of theatrical manifestations of demonic activity in in our community that are sometimes described to us by those who have been in communities around the world, especially poor countries. Why does it seem like demon activity is so much more prevalent and powerful in third world countries than it is in first world countries? I don't think that we should conclude that demons are less active in first world countries than they are in third world countries. 
I think that demons have intelligence and that if their goal is to get people to uh, be in rebellion against God and finally get people to die and go to hell, then uh, a, a slow, quiet method of temptation is, in many cases, more effective than a loud, boisterous temptation that has people with their eyes rolling back in their head and vomiting green vomit and all that sort of thing. Uh, so, uh, if you know, if the devil can tempt you into rebelling against God just because you really love video games too much to tear yourself away from them, then there's no need to be, there's no need to cause alarm. You see, if if the task is being accomplished of leading you to go apart from God in a way that doesn't raise alarm, then I, I think that an intelligent demon would take that course of action. So there, there are many good things that are harmless in themselves, but if they become things that take the place of our seeking God, then they are damning for us. And so I think that sometimes uh, the reason that we don't see the sort of uh, obvious uh, theatrical, violent manifestations of demon activity in our country that we hear described in third world countries is because a slow and quiet method of subversion is more effective in our culture. I I don't think that I've ever met anyone who is demon-possessed as far as I know, but I live in the same household with people who have been influenced by demons. Now, you might tend to smile at that, but the sad fact is they also live in the same household with someone who has been influenced by demons. In one of the songs that we sang a while ago, it was, uh, I can't remember the exact phrase, I don't have the song memorized, but it, he is our helper against the attacks of the devil. One of the reasons that we are to carry the the shield of faith is so that we might quench the fiery darts that Satan throws at us. Well, you know, that's not literal fiery darts. It's not a literal shield. It is the shield that believes the truth against the ideas that can be flung against us. So I gather from that and what the Bible says elsewhere that, that spirits are able to put thoughts in our minds, or to keep thoughts from occurring. And that's one reason why it is so important for us to know the truth, so that we will uh, be able to quench these fiery darts that are thrown against us from the evil one. Um, In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian is walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and there are, unknown to him, Unknown to Christian, there are some evil spirits who come up and begin whispering things in his ears. And uh, John Bunyan describing it says, Alas, poor man, this put him in great distress because he thought that these blasphemous thoughts were his own. He didn't realize that demons could whisper these things. I have shared that in several counseling sessions, and it has been very, very helpful to the person who just assumed 
because I've got this bad thought that has flitted through my mind, that must be an indication that everything is not right. But that thought that goes through your mind, how do you treat it? Do you welcome it? Do you wrap it in swaddling clothes and put it in a special place in your heart? Or when that thought comes into your mind, do you say, get out of here. I don't want to think those things. If, if you say, get out of here, then you can probably be sure that that was a thought that the Lord allowed an evil spirit to fling at you. But just lift up the shield of faith. Say, that's not true. And I, and I want you to get out of here and leave me alone. In the name of Jesus, leave me alone. So this man, when, when he sees Jesus, he, he cries out with an interjection. And uh, again, I ask my family, is there an interjection of fear that is common in America? And sad to say, they confirmed what I also had settled on as the preferred interjection of fear in our culture. Oh, my God. It's like that's the first thing that they say. Or Jesus Christ. It just seems like if somebody gets surprised by something that is frightening, first thing they do is take the Lord's name in vain. Have you ever wondered why why taking the Lord's name in vain remains such a persistent interjection? I mean, some of you back in the 1950s or 60s, when when you thought that something was really impressive, you may have said, that is so square. Nobody says that anymore. In the 1960s, when I was a kid... Things became groovy, man. (laughs) Nobody says that anymore. I can't keep up with all the stuff that the kids say these days. Uh, But it's always changing. So expressions of admiration are always changing. Why is it that interjections of fright or why is it that people just persistently through the years take the Lord's name in vain as their preferred interjection of, of fright or amazement or surprise. The ESV translates this, inter- and it's an interjection in Greek too. It's just epsilon alpha. We pronounce like, yeah. Nobody says that. I thought, yikes. But that's mostly like in Calvin and Hobbes or some comic strip. It's people say, yikes. Um, but the, and, and ha doesn't do it. So the ESV translated that as ha. Ha is the sort of thing that I say when I've got you now. Ha. It's not the sort of thing when I was like, huh. But this, this demon, it, it is an interjection of sudden surprise and fright. And then he says in a loud voice. So church is over at this point. He cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Apparently he had received some information that the one they were to look out for was the Jesus from Nazareth. But he knows that there's more to Jesus of Nazareth than just being from Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? You see, that's in the back of his mind. 
He knows that there is a judgment that is coming. And he's wondering, is it now? Is this the time that you've come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're not just from Nazareth. You're the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him. Don't, don't talk anymore. Jesus does not need that kind of public relations. He doesn't need the wicked calling out. And this is not the only time that we find him rebuking a demon and telling him to be quiet. Be quiet and come out of him. Well, the demon didn't want to come out and, and he threw him down. May I say that he probably threw him down like a 63-year-old man hitting the pavement on a bicycle wreck. But unlike that illustration, the man was not hurt. The demon comes out. And the people, you know, you can imagine how quiet it must have been. Just think what it would be like in here if suddenly we'd had an incident like that. And then Jesus speaks. Out comes the demon. And the people are amazed. What teaching is this with authority and with power He commands evil spirits. And they come out. They obey him. Let me say this about about demon possession. I I don't want you to leave unnecessarily afraid. But I do, under certain circumstances, want you to leave afraid. I I think that when the Holy Spirit possesses us, he comes because we want him to come. And usually his coming is the culmination of our dabbling in holy things. We've been reading the Bible, we've been praying, we've been going to church, we've become convicted about sin, and so we pray, Lord, save me. And and the Holy Spirit comes, renews our will, and remains with us. So I think that the inhabiting of a person by a spirit is because you have been dabbling in things that are likely to accommodate that spirit. So I don't think that just while you're sleeping tonight, a demon is going to have the kind of power and authority and permission from God to just come and suddenly take over your mind. But if you're messing around with pornography, if you're fooling around with drugs, if you're fooling around with getting drunk, if you're messing around with uh, just always watching and thinking about things that are unclean, you're in danger. You need to stop all that dirty stuff and seek the Lord. Seek to be inhabited by the Holy Spirit. And then I think that's the best protection that we have against demons. When I change the oil in my car... Uh, before I get under the car or truck and, and start getting oil all over my hands, I'll get some hand lotion that I keep there on my workbench, and I'll just rub, uh, rub my hands with that hand lotion. Because my hands are dry and they're full of cracks, and if the first thing to get into those cracked, dry hands is oil, then it's probably going to be in those cracks for a while. Seems like no matter how hard I scrub, I can't get that oil out of those cracked, dry places. But if it's first of all filled with that emollient, if it's filled with that lotion, then the the dirty oil doesn't have such an effect. That's the principle that I'm teaching you now. 
be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then all those cracks and crevices and vulnerabilities that you have are filled up with with the clean Holy Spirit. And it gives the unclean demons no place to attack you. Well, one lesson that I want you to take away from this is that the Lord has authority over everybody. He has authority over evil spirits. And, um, but as I said earlier with, with, the, with the unpardonable sin, you don't need to fret about the unpardonable sin if you will just come to Christ. And if you will not come to Christ, then you've got a lot more sins to worry about than the unpardonable sin. Similarly, you don't need to be fretting about Satan and the demons taking possession of you if you are keeping away from God by your own free will. The end result is going to be the same, whether you're possessed by a demon or just following your own fleshly lusts and desires you still are going to wind up eternally separated from God. But God has provided Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God. He comes with power and authority, and He is able to save all who come to Him by faith. Jim Bob, come lead us in a concluding hymn, please.